I'm Ewan, and welcome to Temp Fans Presents Movements, Scenes, and Genres, or if that is too much of a mouthful, I'm calling it MSG10. Um, we invite a guest on who will talk us through either a genre, a scene, or a, a movement in music um, through 10 songs of their choosing, and it's absolutely nothing like that show about a desert island at all. Um, before we get started, just to remind you, this is a Temp Fans production. And if you fancy spending longer on individual artists, our podcast, Temporary Fandoms, where you can do just that. Also, if you fancy listening to this show and others moving forward with the music um, that we're talking about, head over to mixcloud.com slash tempfans, where you can listen to this one and the other episodes in this series for free. And if you want, you can subscribe, which supports the show and also supports the artists we play. You know, it's like radio, like we used to do before we all pretended that we want to do podcasts, but really we just want to be John Peel. Um, also, if you're listening to on your podcast, your podcast player, that's fine, but you won't hear the actual tunes, but there is a Spotify playlist in the linky episode notes thing, Majig. Okay. Um, our guest today has lots of feathers in his cap, most of which I have uh, got from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> currently drummer in Brixton, the extricated author of the rather splendid Leave the Capital and Have a Bleeding Guess. Um, one of those I have read, host of The Fall Podcast with his brother Steve, the podcast's old brother, and one-time drummer in some band called The Fall. It's Paul Hanley. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Um, before we start, and before I ask you which scene, genre, or movement we're going to look at, um, Wikipedia means I have one question I absolutely must ask you. Um, can you remember the question that knocked you out in the chase, and who was the chaser? Well, it was um, more than one question knocked me out. The one that sticks in my craw was um, COVID. What kind of uh, creature is a COVID? And I said insect. And it is, of course, a bird, like a blackbird or a raven or whatever. And it was Anne Hegarty knocked me out. I will never forget that. Thank you very much. I, I, yeah, that for some reason, Wikipedia is a book, music, music, and got knocked out for £7,000 on, on the chase. <laughs> That's yeah, pretty yeah. Oh. Oh, I'm not ashamed of it. Seven, quite a good cash builder, 7000 I thought. Yeah, that, that's that's really good. Although, notice you didn't go for the higher amount. <laughs> well, no, I, sh I should have gone for the lesser amount, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, Paul, thank you very much for coming on. Um, so, as I've said before in previous episodes of this, the brief is quite wide for a reason. People can come on and talk about anything, uh, any scene or, or place that was special to them or any genre that means something to them. What are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about bands that I saw live in the early 80s and in a, in a strange attempt to narrow it down and give myself some boundaries, I, they're all from one venue, a venue called Raft, well, Rafters slash Fagins, which was on Oxford Road in Manchester. Most of the gigs were at Rafters, which was downstairs. Bizarrely, and they, but occasionally they had gigs upstairs. So only one of, or two of the people on this list played upstairs. Most of these were at, at Rafters, sorry. Which was the small bit? Rafters was the smaller venue. So probably 250 people. But I mean, they used to cram them in in them days. So it wasn't a massive <laughs> venue, but a great venue. You know, one of those like old, small, low roof, hence the name. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm going to ask you to do what I'm asking everybody to do when there is a specific place. Um, I could describe in pinpoint detail the Lord Raglan in Wolverhampton in 1990. I could tell you where the stains were. I could tell you who was in the cloakroom. I could tell you which side the bar was on. Can you just, for the people listening, paint a picture? Because even if they didn't go here, they went somewhere similar. Yeah, so you walk up Oxford Road from... Um towards St. Peter's Square in Manchester. And on your right, there's a venue called Fagin's. The sign said Fagin's. I know that was upstairs. It was a bit more of a type of disco that I'd bounced on occasionally. But if you went into the front door and turned left, you went down a staircase into rafters and there would be a bouncer at the top. And then a 
desk where you paid in or or didn't pay in in our case, which is one of the reasons we used to because of being in the fall and the guy who, who ran rafters had put the fall on a few times. We used to get in for nothing, which is basically why I've got ten bands to tell you about today because I didn't have to pay into any of them. So then you go in, you turn left, and the bar would be on your left. The DJ booth would be on the right, just next to the toilets. And then if you carried on straight down, the at the end of the room was the stage, which was a quite a low stage with quite a low ceiling. And I presume this is where they got the name. The, the, the ceiling tiles, a lot of them were missing above the stage. So it was basically just bare rafters. And there's a very famous picture of Joel Strummer hanging from the rafters upside down because the Clash played rafters on occasion. So, yeah, that was it. And it was sticky carpet. I mean, you've been in the place, haven't you? You know, you know what it smelled like in those days. Stale beer and cigarettes, mainly. Uh, what was the beer of choice? I think, now you've put me on the spot there, I think it will have been Wilson's Lager. Uh, sorry, Wilson's, so it will have been something like um, Skull Lager, you know. But back then, you could drink 12 pints and be okay because it was like 2.8% or something. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't. there wasn't any... None of us were doing shots or spirits or anything like that. Basically, wheat gassy lager was, still is my drink of choice, if I'm, if I'm brutally honest. Um, yes, yeah, that's one of the things that I drank, tried to sophisticate myself, and then went, what, what the hell am I doing? And just went back back to the Me norm. too, yeah. Except now, I li- now I live in Spain, I don't touch the draft beer where I live because I discovered they only clean the pipes four times a year, so I went back to bottles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that in rafters, that was probably a bit too, uh, they were a bit too keen if they cleaned the pumps four times a year, I would imagine. Someone got <laughs> sacked for that for being overly enthusiastic. And before we get to the first song, how long was Fagan's Rafters a a a a part of the Manchester scene? I think it was on its knockings, sort of eighty nine. So it was heyday was seventy nine to eighty five, maybe maybe eighty six. But this the period I'm talking about was probably started, if if anything, late seventy eight. But I was a bit young then, so I started going around seventy nine, and then up till about eighty six, it was. Because there was a lot of places to play in Manchester in those days, surprisingly. But a lot of the band, it was just you know, when you get the right size venue at the right time. So all, a lot of great bands passed through there. I think that's it. And I think the fact you mentioned something about how there was two different rooms and one was bigger than the other. Um, often when you get that, and in Wolverhampton, it was maybe on a slightly bigger scale in terms of size. We had the Wolfram Hall and the Civic Hall. Yeah. And it was a great place to grow up who wanting to see live music because you've got bands on their way up. Yeah. And then bands, indie bands, when they're sort of at their peak, would come back through. And we were we didn't realise how lucky we were. You know, looking back, it was like, oh my yeah. god, that was that was an amazing time. Um, okay, so the period we talk the period we're talking about today, um, you sent me through a, a, a list of songs, and they started uh, about 1980, 1980 going through to eighty one, which was yeah. the period when, in the fall, you would when Grotesque, After the Gram, and Slates. That was around that period, right? About that period, yeah. Uh, I, I probably could have gone on a bit later, but that just see, this just seems like the golden age of rafters for me. So that's why I picked them. Okay, well, before well, we'll come back and talk about some other things, but can you tell us about what's your first song? Um, we're, what, we're doing these bands in the order that you saw them. Yes. Um, although some of them you seem to have seen on the same day, so there must have been some a lot of live music. Um, yes. We're going to start with a band I've never heard of, which is Deutsch, um, uh, Deutsch Amerikanisch Freundstadt, Freundschaft. Yes. You, you call I, them I that and I'll call them Duff. How's that? Is that, is that a deal? <laughs> I, I, I should have done that. Um, who, who were they? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, well, one of us had to say it. <laughs> um, so who, who were Daff? Um, what type of music were they? Why, did you go and see them because they were free or was it a thing that you were like, oh, let's go and see this band that's, that's playing? Right. Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft. They were a German band, not surprisingly, from Dusseldorf, I think. Um, but they, they based themselves in London around about 79 because they, they thought that was where everything was happening, quite correctly. So they played with The Fall in... November, I think, of 79. And I think, I might be wrong with some of the time, but I think they were a four-piece then, and then they went down to a three-piece. So there was a, there was originally bass, drums, guitar, vocals, and then I think the guitarist left and they didn't replace him. And by the time they came to play Rafters, which was July, I think, 80, there was only two of them left. So it was the drummer, 
so uh, Gabby and the singer Robert. So uh, they were kind of electronic. So they had like a synthesizer, pretty simple kind of, you know, like the early Depeche Mode sort of bah, bah, craft, craft work, really sort of sixteen notes, bah, 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 mm-hmm. bah, 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 and a yeah, drummer. Yeah. But they were quite aggressive, and it was kind of that first aggressive electronic music. Like I'm, I'm sure Suicide would was slightly earlier, but because they had a real drummer, they were really they were great actually. I mean, they're really good, but really two really nice blokes, and the, the rest of the fall knew them because, as I say, they'd played with them the year before. So we went specifically to see them. They were supporting, they were supporting the band who was the second record. So it was the same night. Um, but yeah, they were they were really nice guys, and this, this is a, this is a great song that by them that I've picked. It's kind of it's quite a brave thing for them to sing about, really, being as they were you know from uh, Dusseldorf, German band. Uh, this is Der Mussolini, which mentions Adolf Hitler a number of times, but um, if they kind of share a bit of um, DNA with Killing Joke and bit of Front Two. I don't know if you're familiar with Front Two Four Two. That sort of aggressive kraut rock kind of bit cabaret voltaire as well industrial dance i think would probably be the nearest genre you get but they, they are really good at, they didn't do that much they, i think they had a few albums but i think this was this was just when they were getting big i think or as as big as they ever got in england or just before they got really big okay well it's probably a great time to have a listen to that first track um like i said if you're on mixcloud you're going to hear the music right after this if you're now going to hear like a five-second sting and then us talking again, go to Mixcloud, mixcloud.com slash tempfans, and you'll be you know, listening to tunes. It's the logical way to listen to a music podcast, right? Um, all right, so let's listen to Der Mussolini um, by DAF. <laughs> If you're listening to this on your pod player, you'll realize there are no tunes. If you want the free version with all the songs we're talking about, that's mixcloud.com slash tempfans because of copyright reasons, etc. Or there's a Spotify playlist in the show notes. All right, Paul. So you mentioned just before that one that there was a bit of a sort of Depeche Mode similarity in terms of sound, sound. and obviously that was that early 80s electro. Um, Depeche Mode played and recorded something at um, Rafters slash Fagans, right? Yeah, they did. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that my brother Steve and Mark Riley and Craig, maybe not Craig, I don't know, but they definitely went to that gig. I think it was slightly just before or just after this uh, daft gig. They were at that. I didn't go for some reason. I must have, maybe I had some homework or something, uh, but uh, or, <laughs> you know, I had college the next day. But I was I was thinking of sneaking them into this 10, but then I thought somebody will catch me out and say, actually, I think you'll find you weren't at that gig, you know. So I thought, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be truthful. I have definitely seen all of the bands on this list. I, I didn't just look <laughs> up a list of bands that had played and pick the ones I fancied playing. Um, so you mentioned that, as a band, you you went here quite a lot and you got in a lot for free and obviously you were yeah. recording together and sort of hanging out. Was it one of those things where you went as a band and stood in a line watching them or did you just all go in bits and bobs over that period? No, well, I mean, we were, me, me that, at that point, me, Steve, Mark, Riley and Craig were like a, a little sort of mini band within a band, if you like. We must have been incredibly annoying because we just sort of all wandered around together. It was kind of, I don't want to. You don't want to overstate it, but it was kind of two factions in the fall. So there was Mark and Kay, who, who were, and then us four just used to hang around a lot, you know. So we used to. That would be your weekend out. We'd meet in the uh, pub, uh, the old Garrett or somewhere, and then wander around to the venue to watch the group. So it was. It wasn't really Mark and Kay. I think occasionally they went to rafters, and they certainly could have got in for nothing if they'd wanted. They might have been at one of. There's one of the gigs on here. They might have been at actually. In fact, they probably were, but. For most of these, it was just the four of us. And how old were you at the time? In 1980, I will have been 16. I was turned 16 in the February, and I joined the fall in the March. So I was only a young lad, but I, I can safely say I was never stopped for my age at any point in my life. So I, I was I, once. I was once. once and it was. It was, it was so annoying because I'd been going <laughs> to this one pub in Wolverhampton at the age of about 16 for about a year and a half. And then I wandered in, 17 and a half, and this new young barman wouldn't serve me. And I was like, wait a minute, I've been coming in here for a year and a half. I've been going to the Raglan in town and 
Moriarty's for the last year and a half. I'm six foot <laughs> fucking four. Well, yes, <laughs> and, so was I. That's exactly the height I was. So, um, all right, all right. So um, you mentioned that DAF, DAF were the support yeah. act for your next choice. Which they were. Is- which is uh, Basement 5. Now, I didn't know a lot about these until I started uh, researching, and they've got quite a pedigree, Basement 5. If you look at who was in them, so there's uh, Dennis Morris was a photographer, who was more famously a photographer. Uh, he took, uh, you know, the, the first public image album, there his photographs yep. and that, the single, a newspaper sleeve, he did that. I think he took pictures for the enemy, a really great photographer. So he, I think he was obviously a mate of Johnny Rotten's, and then Leo Williams was the bass player, and he went on to be in Big Audio Dynamite and Dread Zone. And the drummer was in Pill for a while. He was in the 101ers. So, and Don Letts was – so they were all a kind of that kind of Gunther Grove scene, I think, you know, where um, – and there is a bit of – you do sound a bit Pill-like, but the, well, I was quite surprised just how, how rocky they are. I mean, they're great. Uh, do you think it's one of those bands where um... – there's a scene, and the, the the bands that make it all plundered from this one band. It seems a bit like that, doesn't it? Because the, 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 if you listen to them now, they're like well, they sounded to be honest, they sound a bit like um, uh, Sleaford Mods, to be honest. But uh, I, they're um, they kind of, well, I suppose Public Image had been going by then, so they, they, they are, there was definitely some kind of crossover with Public Image Limited, who, who are one of my favourite bands ever. Um, but. Uh, well, certainly the early public image before he turned into a complete idiot, but that's a different story. Um, uh, but, this, um, does, this does not paint me in a good light. This paints me as a drunken idiot who was quite proud of himself. But if anybody was at Primavera Sound about 10 years ago when PIL were playing, um, at one point he started shouting, we're not like the others. We don't want your money. And I may have been drunk. And at the back, I just shouted out, Oh, go sell some fucking butter, you fucking butter selling cunt. And uh, I had one. See, I, I never had a massive <laughs> problem with him selling butter. Try, I mean, selling Donald Trump, uh, I've got a slightly more of a problem with, you know. Butter was shorter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so uh, like I say, I wasn't a massive Basement 5 fan and I didn't know much about them, but this single is absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? Well, yeah, and, and it's well, now's probably a, a good time for to put it on. Yeah. All right, Paul. Um, before we get to the next one, um, and there's a, a, a tie into that one, um, what were the indie alternative, um, sort of urban tribes around 80? I mean, sort of post punk isn't really a tribe. I guess was punk still happening, or had punk blown over? Um, goths there was still in, some I... punks, but yeah. So there were still some punks, the sort of tartan uh, beer towel brigade, but they were a, they were a bit ridiculous to be honest. I had all that oi kind of scene, I hated, and especially the, that was kind of tainted with the skinhead thing as well, because there was a while there. Probably it started dissipating a bit by the eighties, but for a while it got this really heavy element that gigs of skinheads. Doing, you know, Zeke Highland, and it was awful. It was, I mean, it was just so. Just so was that actually? Because I mean, my entire knowledge of late seventies, early eighties, and that sort of culture is basically Shane Meadows movies. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I grew, I, I was what sixteen in nineteen ninety. Uh, right. Ish. Okay. So, was it really? Was the National Front really that big at, at gigs and punk gigs and and what? It was because the whole. Um, the whole rock against racism thing started 78 around then as a kind of uh, kickback against that because there was, there was a, an horrible element creeping into gigs. And I don't think anybody really, oh, well, I don't know. You'd like to think that, that a lot of them didn't have such uh, strident views, but, and then probably some of them did and people just get carried along with this. But then rock against racism took, everyone quite the other way. And I think there was a kind of a lurch to the left, I think, which is no bad thing in my eyes. So I think by the time we got to 80, the skinhead thing had kind of died down a bit. And that was like you say, goth was coming in. So you had Susie and the Banshees uh, um, started. Well, they, and Joy Division, they weren't really, they were kind of the Long Mac Brigade, weren't they? And the kind of the Long Mac Brigade uh, kind of evolved into goth. So goth was 
getting into its element then, as we'll see from the next band that was on. But uh, that, that was massive in Manchester, maybe slightly later, but there was a massive goth scene. There was, uh, did, you know, did, you, like, did you ever have a goth? I was going to say summer, but winter seems more appropriate. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I wasn't goth-esque at certain times, you know, <laughs> certain, certain elements of goth, I think. But not not too. Well, you could, I couldn't you couldn't really do it and be in the fall because it, 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 I kind of um, while we were in the fall, everyone dressed very sensibly and behaved very sensibly. I think it got a bit more free. Eighty four when bricks came along and people started spending money on clothes. But before that, we were all <laughs> we were all very sort of you know second hand clothes and stuff you could wear at the bus stop. Yeah, I mean, but that, having said that, I mean, I went to goth clubs quite a lot and I did get a bit more gothy. After that, but I don't think I was ever fully committed to the scene of goth. I, th- I, th- I think that w- I think that's the thing about say the UK goth scene as opposed to say the American one, which you, you sort of watch from afar sometimes. I was yeah. never goth. I w- I was a Grebo kid because I grew up in Wolverhampton and Starbridge, so the bunch of Grebo bands oh, yeah. around about nineteen ninety. So I was in my, into my pot would eat itself and, and, and my game. Atomic dustbin, I presume. Oh. My, um, they'll never listen, so it's fine. My first ever girlfriend for three weeks, her brother was in Ned's Atomic Dustbin. <laughs> that's that's a oh, terrible claim go. to fame. There you go. But when I when I was seventeen, well, however <laughs> old I was, that was brilliant. Um, but then I would go to goth clubs and rock clubs because it was easy to dip into those yeah. scenes and not be part of them. Whereas I guess in the US, you're a goth or you're not a goth, or you're into yes. metal or you're not into metal. I mean. In the in the sense that I wore black gloves and a belt with bullets on, and a you know, if if you're gonna if that's what the kids are calling goth, then guilty as charged, I suppose. Uh, okay, so what's there was, a, bit, there was what a lot of goth clubs in Manchester. What have we got to listen to? Right, the next one. Speaking of goth, is Bella Lugosi's "Dead" by the rather wonderful Ballows. Now, what I really love about this song is just how seriously they take it, given how silly it is. You know. Because it's not it's not Dracula's dead, it's Bella Lugosi, it's the actor, you know. But they just there's a there's a video. We had a round about this time we had our first video recorder, and we obviously are starved for content. So we we'd made this compilation tape of every bit of music we could find. So Theatre of Eight were on there doing on doing Westworld on top of the pops. And we had uh, Pretty in Pink by the Psychedelic Furs and all this stuff. And Bauhaus doing Bella Lugosi's dead on them. Um, one of the one of them shows uh, something else or something I don't know, but he, he, he it feels he, like just, a whistle test to me. If yeah, it, it could have been like a whistle, whistle test. test moment. Could well have been, but they took it. He took it so seriously, and you just know he knew it was completely daft because Bella Lugosi's an actor. He's not really a vampire, you know. I think he knew that, but the record's great because it it takes itself so seriously, but it's still got his tongue in his cheek, which is which is when goth's good, I think. Well, but when you. If you, what you can't do as, as a goth is take yourself too seriously because then you just look idiotic, don't you? But if you've got a if you've got a sense of your own ridiculousness, that's pretty cool, I think. All right, well, um, let's dip into goth. All right, so if Bauhaus took themselves seriously but with their tongue in the cheek, I just want to briefly touch upon um, the idea of scenes taking themselves too seriously. Um, I mean, Manchester has been accused of, um, particularly by other places, of really bigging itself up. And a lot of those big cities, particularly north and particularly in the north, but also maybe London, really take themselves seriously. I mean, I'm from Wolverhampton. Yeah. We're the home of Slade. We're the home of Wonder Stuff, close enough, and Pop Will Eat Itself, close enough. You know, and Babylon Zoo. Um, I mean, we don't really know how to take ourselves that seriously. Um, are the allegations about Manchester off, way off the mark, do you think? No, I don't think they are. I think there's definitely some truth in the fact that Manchester takes itself seriously in a lot of ways. But then, when, certainly from when I came up, when the bands that I was listening to from Manchester joined, it, it was a serious time. You know, it was... Um, the bands weren't in, you weren't in a band for a laugh, really. I mean, you weren't, you know, Joy Division or The Fall or, you know, any of those, or even Buscox or whoever. They weren't, it wasn't about having a laugh. It wasn't about, you know, it was about, it was a serious business going on, I think, being in a band. Certainly for that, that post-punk period, um, took it incredibly was it serious seriously. In, was, was it serious in terms of music serious or was it serious in terms of I want to make a statement or I want to make a change? 
um, what was, why was it such a serious business being in a band? I don't know. I, I, I don't know that it was, we want to change the world. I think by this time you've got to writers like Marky e. Smith and Pete Shelley and Ian Curtis. It wasn't about politics with a capital P and, you know, the left, or it was personal politics, I think. But it, And it was... The approach to being in a band was quite serious, I think. It wasn't, you know, as I say, it wasn't about having... You would, Of all the things you'd say about doing a gig with a fall, it wasn't we had a right laugh last night. <laughs> now, yeah. whether that means you have to take every aspect of being in a band seriously, you probably took it, it's, you know, it was probably a bit too far the other way with the fall. It was like, a, it was a job of work, which is a perfectly sexual thing to do, but it, it was, it was life and death. It was the end of the world if you did a band Did you ever it think you were going like, to make money or did you not care? I didn't care about money. Um, I joined the fall at 16 and I got paid £25 a week, which meant I could go out. I'm still living at home with my mum and dad, but it was never about making money at all. It never even came into it. I joined on £25 a week and I left four, five years later and I was on £50 a week. So there was no fortunes made. And obviously Mate, the fall... Du- you doubled your... I mean... Uh, doubled my salary in five years, yeah. A 100% but, I mean, increase. Yeah. yeah the thought that people would still be talking about the fall now and talking about money in the fall, you know, the people talking about did you get the credit? The fact that people would even be thinking about that the fall 40 years later, I mean, it, it's just, it just wouldn't have computed in 1980 or any of that. I don't think, not just the fall. If you'd said to uh, Barney and Ucky in 1979, people will be talking about this band, like like they talk about the Doors or like they talk about the Velvet Underground. I'm not sure they'd have believed you, but that's not to say it's not uh, deserved. Also, also, I think if you said to them that they'd have a number one single with the England football team and one of them doing a rap, they'd probably not well, have yeah. believed you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, they're a great example of the seriousness of it because they're not they weren't particularly serious people. But the image of Joy Division and just how incredibly serious, they keep using that word, or dour is the wrong word, but focused and aware of the importance of it, I think. And that wasn't how they were as people. They kind of, obviously, they loosened up a bit later under the influence of certain things, but and New Order weren't quite the same vibe, but. I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of that we, you know, that we shouldn't have. Everyone shouldn't have took it too serious because it was it was it was important to us on the to, on to people in Manchester and well, all over. It was an important thing, you know. I think that's it. I think that's the thing about music. Music is music. Music's one of the few art forms that reaches into your bedroom, into your personal space, and it's something you experience on your own. Yeah, you know, listening to something on the radio, listening to something on your headphones. I, I'm not sharing this with anybody. I can if I want to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I um, I was talking to someone the other day who's I don't know, late twenties, and I had to explain to them that if you had music in the past and you wanted your friend to listen to music, you could give it to them. But while they had it, you couldn't listen to it. <laughs> and they yeah. couldn't get yeah. their heads around the concept. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to get back on track for a little bit. Um, the last track was okay. was very goth. Um, and now we're going to, well, in, in my head, um, Happy Birthday, Gregory's Girl, Claire Grogan, yeah. who's the least gothy of goth things, right? We've got Altered Images coming up. This is a jump, is it? It's, I don't think it is. not... If you listen to the song we're playing now, Dead Pop Stars, it's it's goth. It is goth. I, th- I think I might be right that it's produced by Steve Severin of the Banshees, and they, they got their start. They did. They, she was massively, massively in uh, you know in thrall to Susan the Banshees. Claire Gong's a massive Susan the Banshees fan. If she, it sounds like a Susan the Banshees record, she still sounds like Claire Gogan. This, but they obviously evolved out of it. But if even you know. So, but this is like the sound of Young Scotland that they, they involved into that kind of bright, which we'll get onto another band in a moment. But they, they did definitely start off as a goth band. But I mean, even if you listen to I Could Be Happy, it's all of these things I do to escape from you. To, so there's a dark element in there, even then, I think. But th- th- this is a great record. It's, it's not very unlike, if you, if you base your idea of what Altered uh, uh, Images are on Happy Birthday, this will be quite a shock, I think. <laughs> 
Um, all right, so yeah, they were not necessarily the altered images that I thought, and Dead Pop Stars is a great track, but why wasn't it very successful? Well, I think, I think, I don't think they were quite ready to hit the charts, but then I think they thought this was going to be their big one. And then, unfortunately for them, and unfortunately for him, uh, John Lennon was murdered round about the time that this came out. So I don't think anybody was in a rush to put a song called Dead Pop Stars on top of the pops, I don't think, at this point. So I think it kind of disappeared <laughs> rather quickly, yeah. as you can imagine. There are, yeah, there are sometimes just really unfortunate timings yeah. with things. Weirdly once, when I was in my early 30s and I still had hair, someone said I looked, reminded them of Mark Chapman and he couldn't quite work out why. And I was like, really? That's not good, that's is it? Not, if if you no. remind him of Mark Chapman but you don't look like him, that's a bit disturbing, that's, that, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But um, I, I, I definitely I definitely don't have large periods of the 80s unaccounted for, so um, it wasn't me. Um, all right, we're, we're sticking with the Scottish vibe, right, for the next one? We'll, um, we are. Or where are we going with this? Right, well, this is this next one is by a band called Orange Juice, who were kind of come up, came up at the same time as Altered Images. It was like there was like a kind of the sound of Young Scotland, I think it was called. Uh, there would be the kind of all there was uh, the Fire Engines and a couple of other bands, um, really good bands actually. Orange Juice, we kind of knew because we <coughs> we played with them. They came down from Scotland and played at Manchester Polytechnic. There was a like an all-day gig at Manchester Polytechnic. I, I don't know if you... Poly, Manchester Polytechnic was slightly bigger than Rafters. It was kind of the next step up, if you like. And there was a... John Peel did a day there, so there was all kinds of bands on. But one of the bands on were Orange Juice. And around about that time, Mark, Steve and Craig had started this club night where they put bands on, at a place called the Cypress Tavern, which was another venue not far from Rafters, just around the corner. But we, the fall played there, and then they got talking to the owner and decided that they could put bands on. So Orange Juice came down to play the Polytechnic, and they said, well, we'll put you on at uh, the Cypress the next night. That way you can make a few bob. Any profits that's made, you can have it. And they stayed at our house. So uh, this, Edwin, is, this is Edwin Collins, this right? This is Edwin Collins. And, uh, so Edwin and Alan Horn, who ran Postcard, which was Orange Juice's record label, with Edwin, uh, they stayed at our house, and then... Uh, Steve and oh, the bass player's name escapes me, but Stephen Daly was the drummer, the nicest guy in the world. He stayed, they stayed with Mark, so we were quite friendly with Orange Juice. So then, about so this then the April of the next year, we went to see them at Rafters, and we were friends of theirs by then. And they were such a good band, Orange Juice. I mean, that early lineup. I mean, they were great all the way through. But that early lineup where there was the, the four of them, um, they were such a re, such a great band. Um, Felicity and and this song that we're about to play now is is my favourite um, Orange Juice song. One of the reasons it's my favourite Orange Juice song, it's is because I think and I, I've read it somewhere. It's about Pete Shelley, who was who was singing Buscocks, who were probably one of my favourite bands of all time. So it's because it, I mean, obviously uh, Edwin Collins was a big Buscocks fan, as you'll know if you ever heard "Rip It Up and Start Again," because it quotes a Buscocks song in the middle of it. But uh, and but that whole that whole pop thing, where you could be a fantastic pop band and still be, uh, you know, still have something to say and still be a great rock band as well, that is something that Orange Juice took from Buscocks, I think. Okay, well, um, so the tracks "Blue Boy" by Orange Juice. Blue Boy, and you saw them. You saw and you saw them when. We saw them. I think, if if, if I'm not mistaken. The 1st of April, April Fool's Day, 1981. And I have to say, the cavalry charge drumming at the beginning of this, which is brilliant, I must have ripped off 10 times at least, I think, in my career. I'm still ripping it off if I get the opportunity. Um, but in that case, if you're if you're listening at home and when this song kicks in, um, feel free to send us a message and tell us which <laughs> songs Paul ripped this off. It, it's Orange Juice and Blue Boy. Um, all right, so Paul, out of all of these bands that we're talking about today and all of the times you saw them live, how many times did you actually pay? None. <laughs> I mean, for that, that orange juice, 
<laughs> I mean, I w- I w- I'd like to think we'd have got him for nothing because we knew them. But um, Alan Wise, as I said, who ran uh, Fagins and Rafters, he used to let us in for nothing because he'd put the fall on and would continue to put the fall on for the rest of his life, really, to the point where he was almost managing them in a way. But uh, he was he was a big fr- he was a mate of Marks and Kay's, and he, he was he was they were kind of there was a kind of a clique with them, and they knew each other well. So we all, we always used to get him for nothing, which was very nice. <laughs> And and so it was his his night his venue like he, even if he didn't yes. own the actual building it was his thing. Yes, it was. I mean, he put gigs on all over the place in Manchester, uh, but this was his kind of. He ran the whole place really, so he booked the bands and he paid the bands or eventually paid the bands. Uh, so yeah, he he was a, he was big on the he was a big part of the Manchester scene. Alan Wise, you know, he was one of those people, those kind of movers and shakers that uh, don't necessarily get. Uh, as much of the story. But, I mean, he, he plays a big part in John Cooper Clark's. If you read John Cooper Clark's autobiography, which is brilliant, by the way, if I can recommend a book, uh, he's a big part of that. And he's also a big part of this next, the next artist we're going to talk about. It's kind of Renaissance because um, he ended up managing her and she came to live in Manchester. So and, that's, that, and, that's, and that's Nico, uh, that's uh, Nico. of Velvet Underground fame. Nico of the Velvet Underground. So... I'll tell you the story. We were in Rafters. I don't know who we were there to see. Uh, we were sat there, me and Craig and Stephen Mark, and we were sat on this chair, and someone said, that's Nico. She'd, she'd got up, and we'd take it. She was leaving, and we took their seats, and someone said, that's Nico. Well, it was like, what, Nico out of the Velvet Underground? And that, don't be ridiculous, you know. It was, it's like, it was like saying I've just seen Jim Morrison in Quicksave. It was... <laughs> There is no way Nico was sitting in this club. And we were talking, yeah, it was Nico. No, no way that was Nico. And she came back and she said, in this like sonorous German accent, which was, have you seen my tape? So we were saying, oh, no. Uh, right, so we'll just have a look. So I looked behind my chair and I picked up this big black cloth <laughs> to look for this tape, this mysterious tape. And it transpired, of course, that she'd actually said cape. And the big black cloth that I was moving to look for the tape was, in fact, her cape. So that is my claim. If you're talking about dubious claims to fame, that's the time I met Nico and spoke to Nico was when I looked for her cassette tape when, in fact, she was looking for a cloak. And um, I like the fact that Nico had a cape. Of course. jacket. I mean, if it couldn't be better, could it? You've just seen the chanteurs of the Velvet Underground in a, in a nightclub in Manchester and she's come back to look for her cloak. I mean, it couldn't you couldn't get better, could it? Really. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going we're to talk about your choice here. Um, when you sent me your list, you were slightly worried that this one was about nine minutes long. Yes. Um, so why did you choose? Well, it? it had to be this one. So for those of you who are familiar with the Doors epic uh, song, "The End," but you've always thought, well, I think they've been a bit flippant with that version. They couldn't. Did they have to make it so jolly? Well, then this next track is just for you. This is Nico at her um, pump organ that she used to pedal. I can't, what are they called now? Are they called euphonium, is it? I can't remember. Not a euphonium. Oh, I can't remember what no, they're called. Euphonium's like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harpsichord. No, it's got a something onium. Sad. Anyway, but anyway, it might be. But it's a pump organ that you pedal. John Lennon plays one on We Can Work It Out. Anyway, but anyway, so she used to do gigs just on her own. And she did rafters. We went to see her at rafters. and. After she did, you know, uh, she did a couple of Velvet Underground songs and she did, you know, I'll Be Your Mirror and all the great stuff like that. And then I think she finished, I might be right in saying she finished with this, which is a, a nine-minute solo rendition of the end with her on the on the pump organ. And it, it really isn't for the faint-hearted. But anyway, have a listen, see what you think. <laughs> um. Okay, so... I mean, this is a spin-off podcast from the podcast Temporary Fandoms. And, and Paul, you were on Temporary Fandoms. And you you revealed to us that once you were referred to as some other bloke on drum. Yes. Um, when was the first time there was two of you on drums and which of you was the other bloke? Well, I'd like to think Carl was the other bloke. But so, um, uh, so I was, well, without going into too much detail, I was the drum. Carl had the original drum in the fall. He left. They got another drummer in. He left. I joined. And then they had a big tour of America, which I was probably too young to go to. So they got Carl back in. Now, at which point, they finished the American tour, and I became 
the de facto drummer again for about five minutes, and then everyone said, let's get Cal back <laughs> in again. So we ended up with two drummers. And funnily enough, I'd like to say it was a coincidence, but it's been perfectly planned. The first gig we did with two drummers was at Begin slash Rafters, and it was on September the 30th, 1981. So it was upstairs. All these other gigs have been downstairs at Rafters. So we've now uh, gone past the DJ booth, turned right, up the stairs, turned left, and we're now in um, Fagin's, which was slightly more salubrious, a bit better lit, uh, dance floor, proper dance floor, and we played there. Uh, but we, we had a support from Manchester's Finest. And the distractions. when you sent me through this list, I, I'd never heard of them. And I, I put on this track and I thought, this is a bit early. This, the jangly indie sound, the jangly indie pop sound of this track in my head was mid 80s, mid 80s and later. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were. No, no. I mean, they were kind of forerunners of it, really. This is kind of like. I mean, again, I like to keep banging on, but again, this is heavily in uh, debts of Buscocks. It's kind of like Buscocks with slightly worse amplification, isn't it, distractions, which is where that kind of that sort of jangly pop thing is, where you can't <laughs> afford Marshall, so you're still through H&H combos or whatever. But, um, yeah, distractions were kind of one of those bands. They were um, always around, knocking around Manchester. I'd seen them supporting the fall before, the first time, I ever saw the fall. No, the second time I ever saw the fall, they were supported by Distraction. They were great, actually. Really good pop band. And they were signed to a label called TJM, which was basically the label of the rehearsal room in Manchester. Again, not far from Fagin's, just around the corner, that where all the Manchester bands rehearsed. TJ Davidson was the guy. He had this old mill, old Victorian mill, run down, full of, you know, all the windows were broken, and he turned it into a rehearsal room. So Buzzcocks had a room there. The fall. Rehearsed there, Joy Division rehearsed there, the Distractions rehearsed there. But he started a label, and I think I might be right. They were the first band on there, the Distractions. Um, but it's a great band, and they, they eventually signed to Ireland. But um, I think there's, there's apocryphally the story goes that Ireland was struggling a bit, and they had a big board meeting, and they decided they'd have to let a band, one band, go. They had two bands that they were looking at, and in one hand they had Distractions. And the other hand, they had this Irish band <laughs> called U2. And in the end, they plumbed to let the distractions go. So who knows how much money they, they could have made who if knows? they'd gone I mean, the other way. Maybe ten years ago, five years ago, people would have woken up to find the latest distractions album pushed out to their iPods and their iPhones <laughs> while they slept. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's probably as good a time yeah. as any um, for to, to listen to the track um, by the distractions. And that track is Doesn't Bother Me. All right, so when I asked you to send me a list of 10 songs, you originally sent me a list of eight, and you said, it, is that enough? I said, well, it's called MSD 10. Uh, I don't mean to be a dick. Can I get another one or two? And I think you're cheating here. <laughs> I don't think I'm cheating at all. Uh, right, well, so... That night we played the distractions was we they were supporting uh, a band called The Fall as we've mentioned, and this was the first time we played with two drummers. So the two the two tracks we're about to play the two tracks we're about to play might be segued into each other, but they are distinctly two different songs, and they were kind of this is kind of the first one of the first ones we did with two drummers that really, really worked with two drummers. It doesn't sound, there's a, there's a version, a peel session version that I play on my own of Deer Park. And there's a live version that Carl plays on his own. And when you listen to them and then you listen to the two drummers, it kind of shows up what a good idea it was to have two drummers, I think. So, uh, so it's Fortress, which was about Mark's experiences at the BBC in London and Deer Park, which was about, Mark's experiences with rough trade in London. <laughs> and, so they are. And how many? How many of four songs could you start with the words? They're about Mark's experiences in dot dot dot. Well, a lot of them are about Mark's experiences in his brain, aren't they? So, but these <laughs> ones are, are about. They're quite unusual in that they're quite. You can actually pin them down to a specific event or a specific person or a specific set of circumstances. A lot of Mark's lyrics 
And a lot of his best lyrics are certainly a lot more esoteric than that, and you can't really pin them down at all. So this is about as near as you can get to reportage from Mark on both songs. Um, you said that when you when you hear the two versions where the drummer when you you've got individual drummers, it's, yeah. it's obviously it's not the same as having the two. Um, did you work on having one big drug pattern played by two people, or was it just two different drummers? It depended. Sometimes we did it. This this one sounds like one drummer with four arms. That's that's your ideal. But a lot of the time, you did, we used to try and do it like a rhythm guitar and a lead guitar. So you'd have invariably me playing the rhythm guitar and Carl playing the lead guitar slash drums. So he kind of sat on top and did all the frilly bits, which he was absolutely amazing at. He was such a good drummer. And freed from the need to keep the rhythm, he kind of took drums in places I've never seen before or since. So it was an absolute honour to play alongside him, to be honest without getting too uh, sentimental about it. But I really enjoyed it. It, it's, it. I would recommend it to drummers. If you ever get the chance to play with two drummers, uh, do it. You won't get to play with a drummer as good as Carlisle Wager, but um, still worth doing, I think. All right, well, let's have a listen to Carl and the other bloke on drums. Yeah. Um, you said earlier on that if you'd... If you said to young self, younger you in 1979, that people would still be listening to music uh, by the fall, um, 30, 40 years later, whatever, you'd, you'd have been stunned. Um, your next choice, he's still going. Um, and this, yeah, was, yeah. this was very, very, very early Nick Cave in the birthday, in the birthday party or birthday yeah. party? I always screw up my thoughts. The birthday party, I think. <laughs> in the birthday yeah. party. Um, and we're going to do Nick the Stripper. I mean, this is an artist. I mean, was were they just starting then? I mean, this seems like this was what must have been must have been the beginning. He's still going. No, well, they 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 were called the they were they were going for a while in Australia. They were called the Boys Next Door, I think. And I think yeah. that was the name. And then they changed yeah, the name yeah, after the yeah after the Harold Pinter play, I think, the birthday party. Um, and the, again, like uh, DAF, they kind of looked at what was happening and thought if we're ever going to get there, we need to be in England, basically in London, because that's in 1980, that's where it was happening, you know, in England. So they moved to um, England. And one of the bands that they specifically said was one of the reasons they wanted to be, was the fall. So they were big fall fans. Um, so we, we ended up playing a, a number of gigs with the birthday party in the next, the next year in 82. But at this stage, we only knew that they liked the fall. We didn't really know that much about them. So we went along to see them at Rafters. And it's in Steve's book, actually. There's an incident where they got a bit carried away and Nick Cave ripped, because I told you the ceiling was very low on stage, he, Nick, he ripped one of the lights off the ceiling and threw it into the audience and it happened to hit Steve on the shoulder. So we we went backstage after the gig and said hello, and Steve went, I think you've dropped this, and it was the light. He'd had it with him the whole time, and he gave it back to Nick Cave. So we kind of knew them, but, I mean, they are, I mean, to this day, an incredible band. You know, I mean, again, they were a slightly goth band in a way, but on, yeah. on the cooler edge of goth, you know. it was Again, it wasn't self-parody, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't ridiculous uh Dracula impressions with then taking yourself too seriously. But well, I, I, I mean, I think even I mean, there's a big difference, obviously, between say Nick Cave and and Marky e. Smith on a on a face value. But some singers, some yeah. some frontmen of bands, there's this sort of tightly wound energy that could explode at any minute. You know, it's almost yeah. like you, you don't know what to expect. That's and right. I can see a young Cave and a young E Smith um, having a very sort of similar persona on stage albeit a very different one you just don't know where it's going to unfurl where it's going to spin out of control definitely yeah and to combine that as they both did that kind of what the hell's going on here with both being as it's proved over the years that followed incredible lyricists and not just about that kind of unpredictability there was there was a real depth of you know knowledge and skill behind what they did you know as, as is obviously testified by the fact that Nick Cave is still an amazing artist to this day. You know, he played Manchester last week and he's 
I mean, incredible artist, but they were an incredible band. Not to tell, it wasn't it wasn't Nick Cave and, and, and a, a backing band. They were a band. Birthday party they had Tracy Pugh on bass. He was just. I mean, he, I think he's still my brother Steve's favorite bass player of all time. I think Tracy Pugh, and they had um, Roland S. Howard, the guitarist. He was brilliant. You know, they were just. Stunning to watch live, and we had the pleasure of playing with them a few, as I say, a few times. We played with them at Hammersmith Palais, which weirdly uh, Tracy Pugh didn't do because he was in prison at the time, I believe. God rest his soul. But they were an incredible band to watch. Whether you saw them at rafters or you saw them, you know, in a stadium, they were just mesmerising. And this song is quite unusual. It's got brass on it. They obviously didn't have brass when we saw them playing live, but this is, well, it's... I can't say anymore. Listen to this song. It's brilliant. Before we had Google, um, we had to rely on our memories. And, you know, you'd, you'd have that conversation in the pub. Oh, God, who was that guy? Who was that guy? And you'd get home five hours later, you'd get to bed, and you'd wake up in the middle of the night and shout, Kevin Bacon! <laughs> um, Paul just remembered who the other, party in the other person in the birthday party was. Paul, who was it? Well, there was Mick Harvey. I, meant, I should have mentioned him earlier because he was sometimes he was the guitarist, and later on he was the drummer for a while because they had a drummer called Phil Calvert, who they kind of got rid of fairly early on. And Mick kind of, but he was a brilliant multi instrumentalist, uh, uh, Mick Harvey, and he was in the Bad Seeds for a, a good while. So, as I say, there was no passengers on in the birthday party. They were just an amazing band and one of the best bands I've ever seen live. I think, and that, that was probably a, a perfect one to finish then. Um, all right, so. Thank you very much for coming on and taking us through what is a very easy to visualize year and a half um, of the early 80s, 80 to 81 in Manchester um, of rafters. And was there a Fagan or was it just named after, you know, was I it presume. like Dave Fagan's bar? I'm or? presuming it's uh, based after the Oliver Twist character, I would imagine. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know whether Alan... Uh, named it after Fagin, it's possible, but uh, I don't know. Also, that wasn't probably one of my best questions. I might even cut that one out. Um, so <laughs> it's it's been a very easy to visualize journey. Um, I saw most people, even if they have never been there, they've they've had that place of their own. And it also, it's some fascinating fascinating insight into what was going on with you and the other guys at the time, and some great music. Um, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you ever so much for coming. You're very welcome. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much. And you, listener at home, please, if you have enjoyed this, obviously subscribe and do the likey things. But because we're a new podcast, a review is really helpful. And I know Apple makes it really hard to review a podcast on Apple Podcasts. But if you could... Leave us a like somewhere. Give us a review somewhere. Tweet about us. Tell one friend or 10 friends. I mean, I don't really care. Um, it would be really, really helpful. We've got a few really good uh, episodes for this season. And don't forget, uh, there's Temporary Fandoms, uh, which is our other podcast. You can find that at tempfans.com. There's this one. The podcast site is msg10pod.com. And we would highly recommend you go to the Mixcloud page where you can listen to this series for free with all the music we're talking about at mixcloud.com slash tempfans. All right then, uh, see you later. <laughs>